Warning, the following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you wherever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson, and welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy... Famous artists I'll never be able to play like, and recording tips to get your music out to the masses. This episode, we've got a great docket lined up. We've got our news, including some new guitars hitting the Gibson Demo Shop, some new pedals, and a new compressor from a very famous company. We're going to get into talking about a really famous circuit, the Big Muff Pie, you might have heard of it. And we're going to talk about Jay Maskus of Dinosaur Jr. Our tip this week is going to be on what order your pedals should be on your pedal board. It's a great show lined up. I'm glad to have you here hanging out with me. Without further ado, let's get into the news. So, Slash Signature Guitars have hit the Gibson Demo Shop. Uh, This originally started in February, and it was considered bargain-priced for these guitars. Uh, They have a mahogany neck and body, Brazilian rosewood fingerboards, custom bucker pickups, and nitrocellulose finishes, and they do have provenance included, so you will get a certificate of authenticity with this guitar. All of these guitars have been signed by Slash. It's not like a recreation signature or some type of screen print. They were actually physically signed by him, and they come with a signature case and a hat. Unfortunately, it's not a top hat like Slash's. It's a baseball cap with the top hat logo on it. Still cool nonetheless. Uh, The original price was about $13,000 from the demo shop. Keep in mind, these are Slash Brazilian Dream guitars. And all of them sold out immediately from their Gibson demo shop on Reverb, but others have bought them and they're reselling them for about 20 grand. So if you've got 20 grand to drop on a brand new hat, it comes with a new Gibson guitar. It's a great way to justify that purchase. Next, we have the company Eastwood releasing a line called their Black Box Pedals. Now, if you haven't heard of them, Eastwood Guitars are a company who makes recreations of vintage guitars. Uh, They've got a really interesting business model. If you look on their website, you'll see that you can order one of their guitars and then take it home, try it for up to 45 days. If you don't like it, you can return it for a full refund, no questions asked, which is really, really cool, especially for online guitar buying. You don't really see that a lot. Usually if you order something online, say from Guitar Center, the easiest way to return it is to take it back to their store, and then you might have some issues with that, especially restocking fees. But in terms of Eastwood, I think they're really doing a good job with that. But their business model is not the focus of this news topic. So their black box line, there's six pedals in them. Each of them are from $130 to $150 price point, which is a really good price considering they're a boutique brand. The pedals in there include their Manalishi Drive, which is a nod to Fleetwood Mac. It's basically a tube screamer and an amp in a box in one circuit. They've got a clip compressor, which is basically a souped-up version of the Dynacomp. They've got a Blue Vibe Univibe, a Copy Delay, which is a tape echo, a Mag Delay, which is a digital delay, and a Dusty Spring, which is a digital spring reverb. doesn't have an actual spring tank, but nonetheless, all of the demos for these pedals sound really good, and if you put them all together, you've got yourself a great beginning pedal board. Uh, Otherwise, if you're just looking for something that hits the right spot, both in the wallet and in terms of quality, they might be able to fill some holes that you've got. Go ahead, give it a look on YouTube, listen to some demos, find out for yourself if these will work for you. I think they're really cool. Now, 
This last topic in the news, it is a new product released. It's the Source Audio Atlas Compressor, and I've got some interesting thoughts on it. Uh, it's a six algorithm compressor, so it has an LA-2A algorithm, an 1176 algorithm, a diamond optocompressor uh, algorithm, a dual compressor, uh, a version of an LA-2A that uses an LED, and a studio snap compressor, which is like a hard knee compressor. I find that really interesting. Um, you know, you see a lot of pedals recently that are coming out, especially from JHS with the Muffaletta, the Rat Pack, and the Bonsai that have multiple different circuits in one box. That way you try everything. Granted, these pedals are usually on a little more of the expensive side. So this compressor retails for $229. Um, in my thought, you know, I don't know how many people are using multiple different types of compressors. I have three, and I'll be honest with you, all three of my different compressors, the only reason I have three different ones is because I have three different spots that I use them in. One simulates tube sag on some amps, one is for one pedal board for like a modern metal board, and another one is for my, my big pedal board, my mothership. So if you are someone that really likes different flavors of compression or different types of circuits to use, you want to try everything out, you know, this might be right up your alley if you always find yourself oh, I got to switch this 1176 for this Ross compressor. You know, if, if that's something that you're into, great. For me, I don't know how much I'd use it, but it's still a really cool concept, especially fitting all of those circuits in one box. Um, for all you bass players out there that uh, use a lot of compression, I know especially when I play slap bass, I love using different flavors of compression. It does have a special bass mode just to sort of boost those frequencies and pay, attentions to the, pay more attention to the things you'd need. Um, but is it useful, right? Is that something that you're going to use? Um, if you find yourself, especially, like I said, playing bass or playing like chicken pick and country music, you might want to look into having this compressor pedal, having multiple different compressor circuits. But for me, you know, I might wait till it drops a little bit on the used market and then give it a try. However, it's a pretty cool concept. So by all means, if compression is one of your favorite pedals on the market, give the Atlas compressor from Source Audio a try. Now, into the meat and potatoes of our podcast, our famous gear this week is the Big Muff Pie. Now, you may not have heard about it if you've lived under a rock, and that's okay. I'm here to tell you about it. So, the Big Muff Pie is a fuzz pedal, right? And it was made by this company, Electro Harmonics. Electroharmonics was founded by this guy, Mike Matthews, in 1968 in New York City on $1,000 of his own money. Um, if you ever open up a Electroharmonics pedal and you check for the battery, all their stock batteries actually have Mike Matthews' picture on them. Uh, to me, he looks a little bit like uh, Hulk Hogan. But uh, he founded this company in 1968. Uh, their first products were a fuzz pedal called the Foxy Lady Fuzz that was actually OEM built for Guild. Um, when it was branded in-house, it was called the Axis Fuzz, and it was riding on the success and the fame of the satisfaction sound of the Rolling Stones. Uh, if you really want to get that sound, Electroharmonics also makes a two-knob pedal called the Satisfaction Fuzz that's supposed to get exactly that sound. Same year, uh, 1969, they also made the LPB-1, the Linear Power Booster, and it was a no-frills, one-knob boost that they introduced in 1969. Now, later that year, uh, we see some of the devices that are famous from electroharmonics. Uh, the Screaming Bird treble booster and the Mole bass booster started, uh, although I believe the Screaming Bird was under a different name at that time. 
uh, some devices that were you know, pretty successful at the time. And then they also have some other devices that were considered insane now. One example of that is actually the Mike Matthews Freedom Amp, which uh, in venues back then that didn't have reliable AC power, you could tote this amplifier around and power it with 40D batteries. God, I can't imagine lugging that around in addition to everything else. But in the late 1960s, we see the Big Muff come around. It's a four-transistor fuzz circuit that was made by Electroharmonics. Uh, the first version was introduced in the late 60s. It started with a pedal called the Muff Fuzz, which was an overdrive that's actually somewhat similar to a tube screamer. It was called a Muff because, according to the creator, it sounded muffled. And the Pi, you know, I should let you Google that yourself, but the Pi was slang for women's private parts. You know, they're marketing directly to their consumer base at that time. But... Bob Meyer from Bell Labs was actually contracted by Mike Matthews to create a drive with more sustain. That's why we see the sustain control on the Big Muff pedals. Bob Meyer created the Big Muff in 1969, with the first version being the Triangle Muff, and you can also find that as the Guild Foxy Lady, where you see the same enclosure, same knobs, same layout, same exact pedal, just different names on the enclosure. Each version has four different stages, so this is what's the same between all of these variations. The first stage is a boost. This boosts your signal into the clipping section, which is the second stage. Clipping section contains two of the transistors and works to actually create your fuzz. After that, you have the tone stack, and then you have your output boost. Basically gives it another bump and brings up any high frequencies that were lost in the tone stack section. This is a fuzz pedal that was inspired by the fuzz face and other contemporary fuzz boxes at that time, but instead of using two transistors or three transistors, we see four transistors in a pedal. Uh, something really interesting about the Big Muff circuit is that a lot of fuzzes, especially you know two or three transistors, they like to be in the front of your pedal board. They like to see really high impedance, but Big Muffs, because of their four transistor design, you can pretty much throw them anywhere on your pedal board and they'll still sound good. Um, one thing to note about these variations that we're going to go over is that the Big Muff was designed to be a working man's guitar pedal. So a lot of the circuits are made from whatever components electroharmonics could get easily at the time. So you'll see a lot of variations and when I'm discussing the sounds of these different models and showing you the sounds of the reissues, you'll you'll get an idea of what each version relatively sounded like. But if you actually look into different components and things like that, you'll see that they might have used different transistors. They usually try to use match transistors in the circuit, but sometimes you can find big muffs that have different types of transistors in the same box. But uh, realize that until you get to like the NYC muff, you're really looking at multiple different types of components and circuit board layouts before it gets standardized in 1973. So, starting off with the Triangle Muff, this is the first version of the Big Muff that was introduced in 1969, but it wasn't actually put into production until 1971. It was sold for about $40 at MSRP at the time, and it was so-called the uh, Triangle Muff due to the simple gray enclosure with three knobs in a triangle pattern, unlike the inverted triangle that we see on later Big Muffs. Uh, the Triangle Muff only operated on 9-volt battery power. It had a volume, a sustain, and a fuzz control. But what's a little bit confusing about this is your sustain control, like on later Big Muffs, is your actual fuzz control. 
and the control labeled fuzz on the triangle muff is actually your tone control. Kind of crazy, but you know, it was the it was the 70s, people were just doing whatever. Uh, it used a large variation of components as we talked about, uh, essentially whatever was available, but it had relatively similar transistors in each circuit, except for limited examples where you have unmatched transistors in the same enclosure. Interestingly enough, the original Triangle Big Muff actually had an on-off switch right next to the volume knob. It was a little black slider switch, sort of like you'd see on like a Jazzmaster or a Jaguar. And that was in addition to the actual foot switch that turned the pedal on and off. I'm not really sure why that was there. Uh, my guess might be so that, you know, if you're transporting your pedal board or you're transporting just the pedal itself, because it's running on a 9-volt battery, you can move this switch. That way, if the foot switch got tapped, it wouldn't actually turn the pedal on and drain the battery. I'm not sure, but you see that for quite a bit, and I'll let you know what they did with that part of the enclosure when we get there. Uh, now, the reissue for the Triangle Big Muff, if you're really looking to get that original Big Muff tone, that Rolling Stones era fuzz, is the Triangle Big Muff reissue. It sells for about 110 bucks on Sweetwater, you can order it today, even less on the used market if you're hurting for cash, and you'll get a really great sound out of it, very true to the original. Let's go ahead and give a listen to the Triangle Big Muff reissue. So next, in 1973, we see the introduction of the Ram's Head Big Muff. This was at a similar MSRP of $40, and it was the best-selling electroharmonics pedal until the year 1975 when the small stone phaser was introduced. It was called the Ram's Head due to the electroharmonics Ram's Head logo in the bottom right corner. The volume, tone, and sustain controls are similar to the ones we see on later Big Muffs, where you actually have regular volume, regular tone that affects the high end, and then the sustain control is your fuzz. The on and off switch remains on the pedal, but it's now moved to the back of the enclosure near the jacks. There's still around 20 different circuit variants at this time, but the general sound is marked by a more mid-scooped and a higher gain sound than the typical triangle muffs. So it sounds a little bit different than the version 1 muffs. Uh, the reissue that we're going to be listening today is based on the Violet Ram's Head muff, which was arguably the most popular, most sought-after version. And this is the Ram's Head Big Muff reissue. It retails for about 110 bucks on Sweetwater, even less on the used market or reverb. Go ahead and pick one up if you like what you hear. <laughs> Now, Ram's Head is arguably my favorite, but we're going to get into the classic here. This is the big muff that everybody knows and loves. This is the NYC muff. So this is going to be like your classic black and red iconography that you see on a lot of big muff clones, or whenever you really just think of the pedal, the big muff. This specific variant was introduced in 1976. Uh, it's the first big muff to actually have a power jack, not just a battery. So the Ram's Head and the Triangle, they could only be powered by that 9-volt battery. The MSRP here has now moved up to $50, um, probably just considering inflation and the scaling of the business. The tone bypass switch is now replacing the actual power switch. 
So that power switch that we saw in the back of the enclosure and the ram's head muff, that's now turned into a switch that takes the tone potentiometer completely out of the equation. Um, we're going to see that again on later muffs and on one of the reissues, but not this one specifically. However, just know that that feature was introduced around this time. The first NYC muffs were actually copies of the ram's head circuit, they just had a graphic change. But later on, standard NYC circuits were more aggressive than the ram's head, and they had a more tight and less flabby sounding low end. So you see, you know, in the beginning in 1976, it's just um, essentially a rebrand of the pedal. And then they start to move through these variations, standardize the manufacturing process, and get the sound that we think of as the standard Big Muff sound. There's two specific reissues that I'm aware of with this specific model. There's the Nano Big Muff, which is at 80 bucks. That's the, you know, regular MXR-sized enclosure that you'll see on most pedals. And then there's the early 2000s Big Muff reissue for $95. This is the only reissue to date that comes in the original size Big Muff enclosure. It's like a very large enclosure about the size of a whammy. And it's kind of difficult to tell the 2000s reissue Big Muffs from the, you know, 1970s NYC Muffs. However, if it has an LED on it, it's a 2000s reissue. If there's no LED and it has that switch on the top, it's the regular NYC Muff from the 70s. So let's go ahead and give a listen to the large case reissue, probably my favorite one, mostly because of how it looks, but definitely the sound as well. If you like what you hear, you can pick this up for 95 bucks on Sweetwater. Let's take a listen. So, after the introduction of the standard Big Muff, we see something weird in the evolution of the Big Muff, and that is the Op Amp Big Muff, short for Operational Amplifier Big Muff. Now, the original Op Amp Big Muffs, they weren't actually demarcated as an Op Amp Big Muff on the case. However, we see these come about in 1978 based on people, you know, buying the actual pedals and cracking them open, looking at the circuit. And it was believed that this was in an effort to make a cheaper circuit. The two operational amplifier chips were a lot cheaper to use instead of four silicon transistors, and it cut down the manufacturing costs. Remember, the Big Muff is a working man's fuzz. Now, the op-amp Big Muff actually includes the tone bypass switch that's later seen on the reissue. Um, that's the only reissue that contains one is the op-amp reissue. And it was met with limited success compared to the previous versions. So, you know, in 1978, people were like, oh, I know what to expect out of the Big Muff, I know the sound that I'm getting, and then the op-amp hit the market, and people were like, you know, I don't know if I like this as much. Um, but it did see a marked resurgence, uh, especially like at the late 90s, early 2000s, and modern day. If you notice, the actual box for the op-amp Big Muff is orange, and it says uh, your pumpkin pie in a reference to the Smashing Pumpkins, because Billy Corgan was a huge fan of the op-amp Big Muff especially on the Siamese Dream record. Uh, it's got a fizzier and a harsher sound, and that can definitely be attributed to the op-amps uh, that are used instead of the transistors. So you're going to see something with a lot more top end, a lot more bite, you know, a little bit more aggression in that frequency range. Uh, the reissue that we're going to be listening to is the op-amp Big Muff reissue, that orange enclosure one. And if you like what you hear, you can pick it up for about 90 bucks, brand new. Let's go ahead and give it a listen. Thank you. 
Now next in the evolution, we have arguably one of the most famous variants other than the MYC, and that is the Russian Big Muff. Now this was introduced in 1991, and the reason that we see this, you know, departing from manufacturing in the U.S. is that uh, electroharmonics actually have gone bankrupt twice at this point. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you see a lot of factories that don't have contracts, a lot of workers that are out of jobs, and Mike Matthews saw this as essentially the perfect storm to get some lower-cost manufacturing and start the revival of his brand. Now, uh, around this time, we also see uh, electroharmonics start making vacuum tubes. They did this in the old Sovtech factories. Um, but... For the Russian Big Muffs, they were rumored to use, like, old tank armor from the Russian BMPs or, like, landmine cases from Russia. That's actually some a rumor that I heard that I had spread around to more than a few people, and I feel bad about it. But we're correcting it now. That is not the case. There is no, there's no evidence for this whatsoever. Um, it's just internet rumors that propagate on forums that, you know, younger me believes. But if you ever hear it, make sure you correct people. That's not the case. Um, the Russian Big Muff is actually back to a 9-volt battery only. And it's got a lot more low-end, um, a really prominent mid-range, and a lot lower gain than the NYC Muff. Now, the reissue is the Green Russian Big Muff Pie reissue. Uh, it's 100 bucks on Sweetwater. And a lot of people uh, that really tend to use this tend to be like shoegaze or alternative rock players. Uh, I really enjoy it. I think it sounds like a like a bit of an interesting flavor on a distortion pedal. But uh, let's give it a listen. If you like what you hear, pick one up. Let me know what you think. Here we go. So we've talked all about the Big Muff. And I love the Big Muff. It's got a special place in my heart. Uh, even though I'm mostly a metal player, I just love fuzz pedals for some reason. I just think they're really Velcro-y and nasty and great. Now, fuzz pedals go all the way from classic rock to pop to punk to alternative rock to indie. But one of the genres where they shine the most is shoegaze. Right? And uh, if you haven't really heard of shoegaze, shoegaze is essentially a type of rock or metal that... Uh, it's called such because most of the guitar players use tons of effects, tons of pedals to create a lot of ambient noise. Uh, it's called shoegaze because they're constantly looking down at their shoes to see what pedals they're stomping on. And one of my favorite bands that looks at shoegaze um, is Dinosaur Jr. Right now, Dinosaur Jr., uh, their guitarist is a guy named Jay Mascus. You might have heard of him. He's a 56-year-old guitar player, uh, famous for playing in Dinosaur Jr., but he's got a few other bands. He actually originally started playing drums, and then they formed a band called Dinosaur in 1984, but it was later changed to Dinosaur Jr. when they learned that another band in the San Francisco area already had the name Dinosaur. The first Dinosaur Jr. album was released in 1985, and uh, Jay Maskus actually released a solo acoustic album in 1996 called Martin and Me. Their most recent album is Sweep It Into Space with Dinosaur Jr. in 2021. And there was actually a whole documentary, if you're interested in the band, called Freak Scene that was also released in 2021. Uh, they're still active. They're currently on tour right now, and they play essentially alternative noise rock. But give them a listen. I think you'll like them. 
the song that we're going to be talking about today is arguably their most famous song. It's called Start Choppin'. So without further ado, let's look at the gear that Jay Maskus uses on this song. For the guitar, he's been known to say that his 63 Fender Jazzmaster is his baby, his one and only. Um, it's got all original pickups, but he is a fan of modifying things. So modifications to this uh, Jazzmaster include a tunematic bridge, so you're looking at a Gibson-style bridge instead of the regular Jazzmaster bridge, and a Mastery vibrato. Uh, if you guys haven't heard about the Mastery vibrato units, they're a really great upgrade that you can make to any like Jazzmaster, Jaguar, or Mustang guitars, any of those rear vibrato units with the simple spring. You can replace it with the Mastery vibrato to essentially fix tuning stability, fix string loading issues, things like that. But uh, J-Mask's 63 Jazzmaster, that model typically goes for about 12 grand on the used market. And he typically uses Jazzmasters live and Telecasters and Gibsons with P90s in the studio. So for this guitar, what we're going to use... Uh, Squire actually has a J-Mascus Signature Jazzmaster. I don't believe they're in production anymore, but you can find them on the used market for between three and five hundred bucks. Uh, it's a really beautiful guitar. It comes in that Olympic white finish, and it's got a gold anodized pickguard, which is absolutely gorgeous on Jazzmaster. I love the look on that. And you also have the Squire Classic Vibe Jazzmaster. It's about four hundred and sixty bucks. Uh, they're still in production now. And it's a great way to get a budget price, but very high quality instrument. You know, I've spoken really well about the Classic Vibe line before. I think that they're, in terms of Fender's current business model, they're currently replacing the Mexican line of guitars. And then you have the Squire Thinline Telecaster. And I really like the Squire Thinline Telecaster because it's got that F-hole, it's got that semi-hollow body. And I think that having that F-hole creates a bit of natural distortion in the guitar, something that works really well, especially for this kind of sound, this alternative and indie rock. Just getting that movement from the extra air moving through the body of the guitar, I think really helps a lot in terms of accomplishing the sound that we're going for here. So we're going to use the Squire Thinline Telecaster for this demo. Now, for his amp, Jay Maskus actually uses four amplifiers when playing live. Uh, there's three full stacks and one combo. Now, the combo isn't used all the time, so we're going to go over these three full stacks. Uh, the first two are a Marshall Super Bass, and the last one is a High Watt DR-103. Due to the overwhelming use of Marshall and the use of Marshall you know, throughout his early guitar playing career, I'm going to go with that sound because, let's face it, this is a budget podcast. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm not buying four amps to sound like one guitar player. <laughs> uh, usually, he just essentially cranks the hell out of it for sustain and noise, which is what a lot of guitar players, especially you know, decades ago, would do. Uh, but the amp head alone, just for a Marshall Super Bass, goes for about two and a half grand used. If you're interested in that, some great budget options are the Marshall Origin 20 watt tube head. It's an actual full tube Marshall head. It's their budget tube model. It goes for about $649. Keep in mind, if you go with that, though, you're going to need a cab to go with it. Another great option is the Bugera Infinium G20. This goes for about $389. This is another full tube head. It's on a budget. I have one of these, and they work really well. You know, I love the G20. Keep in mind, you're also going to need another cabinet for it. But our 
less or least expensive option on this list is going to be the Boss Katana 50 Mark II. For the 50 Mark II, you're just going to set it to the crunch setting and you're going to let it rip. Right? Keep your gain relatively low, but make sure your actual volume is pretty high. And you can use the neat little power attenuator feature to make sure that you can play in an apartment without getting a noise complaint. But uh, from there, we get a really nice bass tone. And what we're going to look at next is the pedals that Jay Mascus uses. Now, Jay Mascus uses an extremely large pedal board, large enough to use a MIDI switcher, you know, look at pictures of it on a quip board or in his rig rundown with Premiere Guitar, you'll see how large this mothership is. But um, there's a lot of ground to cover on it, right? He has a lot of different sounds, especially playing alternative and noise rock. So having a large pedal board is essentially a staple of the genre. On this one song, however, Start Choppin', he seems to only use a reverb, a flanger, a treble booster, a fuzz, and a few lighter drives. So for the reverb, uh, it looks like Jay Mascus usually uses an Electroharmonics Ocean's 11. These go for about 167 bucks, which is pretty cheap considering it's a multi-algorithm reverb. You get a lot of different reverb sounds out of it. But if you're looking to go just a little bit less expensive, you can go for the Electroharmonics Holy Grail. It's $131 brand new. It's a simple reverb, and it's going to get you a great sound. So let's go ahead and give a listen to what our guitar, our amp, and our Holy Grail sound like together. So as you can see, we've set the reverb to be pretty low in the mix. We just want a nice little sprinkling of reverb on there because re reverb makes everything better. But next, we're going to be looking at his treble booster. So treble boosters are a bit of a th funny thing in the pedal world. They were very famous back in the 60s and 70s. You see a lot of people um, like Brian May from Queen using them. Um, and usually they're Germanian treble boosters. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of modern-day treble boosters on the budget market. Uh, even Jay Mascus himself is using a few different types of clones. So for this purpose, I'm using a clone. I'm using a Rifkind FX Linear Powerbird. Uh, you'll notice Linear Powerbird is LPB, just like the Linear Power Booster from Electroharmonics. This guy is a you know great little pedal manufacturer. If you've seen the ads for like the Karen speaker manager, he makes those as well. But he takes an Electroharmonics LPB1 and he includes another circuit that turns it into a treble booster. I got it for about 50 bucks on reverb. I'm sure you can find another one there as well. But let's go ahead and give a listen to what that reverb, guitar, and amp sound like with this linear Powerbird treble booster. <laughs> that's a great foundation for our verse tone for this song. Um, once you get into the chorus, we start seeing the introduction of the fuzz, right? So looking at the fuzz, we have the ram's head that's he's, that he's using, the violet ram's head version. And on the used market, these go for about a grand and up. But like we just talked about, you can use the reissue from Electroharmonics, get it for 110 bucks, and you could buy almost 10 of those for what you could for one used violet ram's head muff. So let's give a look to our reverb and our ram's head muff together.
So that was our Rams head muff, but it's still missing something. Like we talked about, Jay Maskus is essentially a shoegaze artist. He uses a lot of pedals together. One of the great ways that you can push big muffs is using a drive in front of them. Now, uh, Jay Maskus uses a TubeWorks Real Tube Overdrive. If you've seen these before, they're that black and yellow little pedal enclosure. It looks kind of like a Sans amp. And they go for about 160 to 200 bucks. Now, a great alternative to this is the Earthquaker Devices Plumes. It's 100 bucks. It's a Tube Screamer clone, but it's got three different circuits in it to give you a little bit of flexibility and options. It's made by a great company in America. It's great quality, and it's got a lifetime warranty. Go ahead and pick one up, and let's give a listen to that in addition to our reverb and our Big Muff. So the last portion of this pedal board for this song is going to be the flanger. Um, if you look at pictures of Jay Maskus' pedal board, you'll see that he's got a huge electroharmonics electric mistress. It's one of their very famous flangers. You get them for like 200 to 300 bucks, even though they're a pretty vintage pedal. But a great budget option is the stereo electric mistress. It's for 150 bucks. It comes in an enclosure similar to like the Micropog. It's a simple three-knob flanger, and it's a great choice to get this sound, introduce a little bit of movement, and really put the cherry on top for that shoegaze sound. So let's give a listen to our reverb, big muff, plumes, and the flanger together. So... We've got our shoegaze pedal board for this song topped off. It's a great starting point to get you a tone for a very famous artist and a very famous song. Uh, if you like the gear in this, let me know. Let me know if it worked for you. Let me know what you changed. Let me know how you went. But moving on, we've got our great tone again, but we're talking about shoegaze here. If you're a shoegaze enthusiast, you don't have just three pedals on your pedal board. You've got a ton. So, our music tip for this week is going to be talking about your pedal order. Whether you've got three pedals lying on the floor or 30 pedals spread across the three different boards, pedal order is important, right? Everything that we do is important. We put a lot of work into picking the right guitar, putting the right pickups in, picking the right amp, setting the amp, picking the pedals, putting the settings on the pedals. Why shouldn't we put the same amount of thought into the order of our pedals? So, uh, there's a lot of different schools of thought in terms of pedal order, and this is one person's opinion. But anything that I say, right, use it as a starting point. If you don't know what you're doing, if it's your first time putting a pedal board together, or if you're realizing, oh, wow, the order really does matter, use this as a jumping off point, but try different things. Multiple different things can work for multiple different people for multiple different songs. This is just a primer. This is general conventional wisdom about how you should put your pedal board together. But ultimately, it's up to you. Whatever sounds good and works for your music. What you're going to want to start with is, in my opinion, usually pedals that are too large for the board need to be first. Uh, in this case, uh, I'm thinking like the Digitech Whammy, a volume pedal, and a wah pedal. This isn't just because they're too large, but it's usually these pedals that will end up needing to go first, right? So the whammy is going first because it's a pitch shift pedal. Your volume pedal is going first because 
you're using that to manipulate the rest of your pedals, your wah pedals going first, because it's a filter effect. But uh, after that, you're going to want to look at your tuner. So you want your tuner to go first, because if you're like me and you run your tuner while you're playing to make sure that, you know, you're bending to the right note and things like that, you want to make sure that your tuner's signal isn't being affected by any of the other pedals on your board. So anything too large for the board and then your tuner. Next, you're going to look at filter or pitch shifting effects. Essentially, effects that sound like this. So, why would we want to put pitch shifting effects first? Well, simple answer is if you're using something like a Digitech Drop, you want to change the whole tuning of your guitar, right? You don't detune strings in the middle of pedals, so you want to get the cleanest signal you can going towards your pitch shifter. More complicated answer is pitch shifters are digital pedals, so they're using a digital computer algorithm to determine what they're shifting your pitch to. Uh, a feature of this is called tracking, and it's how well the pedal can listen to your signal. If you throw a bunch of stuff in the middle of the signal, it's not going to be able to latch onto the notes that you're playing. So what does an example of good tracking sound like? This is good tracking on a Digitech Whammy. So that's what we want our pedal to sound like. We want it to have very even tracking. You heard the harmony there. There wasn't any warbliness. It almost sounded like an organ. But what does bad tracking sound like? Uh, the example for bad tracking here, I'm simulating it using a MXR Poly Blue Octave, and I put it in the mono mode and I'm playing chords. So if you have any type of monophonic synth or monophonic pitch shifter, this is what you get when you play multiple strings at one time with pedals that are only designed to track one note. This is a similar effect to what you get if you put modulation or some drives before a pitch shifter pedal. So there you heard a lot of warbliness, you heard how the higher octaves couldn't really come through because it couldn't really tell what I was playing. Once again, that's just using a monophonic mode on a pedal. Uh, nothing's wrong with it, but that's essentially the sound that you'll get if you put your pedals out of order with a pitch shifting effect. So next is going to be your filter effects. Filter effects could be things like wah or things like an envelope filter. I really love the sounds of envelope filter. So if it does something like this, you're going to want to put it right after your pitch shifting effects. <laughs> And it's a similar reason to the pitch shifting effects why we want to put it closer to the front of the chain is that, especially for an envelope filter, it's relying on your guitar's input to manipulate itself. So anything that's relying on your guitar's signal to change something is going to need to go relatively soon in the, in the pedal chain. You want it as close to the guitar as possible. That way you don't corrupt any of the pedal circuitry in terms of trying to track what you're playing. After this, we're going to go to compression and dynamics. The reason I like to put compression and dynamics, like compressors, uh, pretty close right after those filter and pitch shifting effects is that I don't want things like my reverb trails or my delays to be compressed and get louder. I want them to naturally decay and die off. So in this demo of a compressor, right, it's very subtle. So 
I'm gonna play it without a compressor, and then you're gonna hear the foot switch click, and you're gonna hear the demo with a compressor. And hopefully from listening to this demo, you'll see what a compressor does and sort of understand why you'd want that before your other pedals. So after our compressor, we've got our drives. Now I say this with a little bit of a warning. I personally like to put my phaser before my drives. Um, phaser is a type of modulation, and usually modulation will go after drives, but I just think there's something really cool about having a phaser before it hits your drives. It sounds really interesting, it sounds really neat. So before we get to drives, just try throwing your phaser in front of it. It'll sound really good. Whether you put the phaser there or not, next is drives. Uh, there's different schools of thought with this. Normally, a majority of multiple pedals on a pedal board are going to be drive pedals. So you're going to have more than one drive. Some people like to do low to high, meaning like you'll put your clon and then a distortion and then a fuzz. Some people like to go high to low where you'd have the inverse order. But one thing that I don't typically see people doing and I don't like to do is having, you know, maybe like a fuzz and then a clon and then a tube screamer. Uh, doesn't really make sense to me, never really sounds too good. For me personally, I like to go low to high. So I'd have a clon, a tube screamer, a distortion, and then a fuzz. But for the sake of argument, you know, change it around. Do what you'd like to do, see what sounds good, and use it. If it works for you, use it. Uh, don't let me tell you how to change your pedal board around if you got something that works for your music. But let's go ahead and listen to what a distortion sounds like, give you an idea of what different drives and distortions can do for you. So, drives, they have a lot of clipping. They make a lot of noise. They amplify anything that's going on with your pedals. And one of the things that we all hate is 60 cycle mains hum, right? So one of the ways that you can get around having all this extra noise is a noise gate. Um, depending on what type of music you're playing, your noise gate might go in one of two different places. Because I typically play metal and I use a lot of gain, I like to put my noise gate right after my drives. Um, I usually have my drives always on, my drives are creating a lot of artificial noise, so having a noise gate after them works really well. But if you don't find yourself using drives a lot, or only using very light drives, and you want to get that 60 cycle mains hum out of the way, you want to throw your noise gate closer to the beginning of your chain. Now all a noise gate's going to do for you, you're going to set what's called a threshold. That threshold is going to tell the pedal, hey, when the noise level drops below so many decibels, cut out all noise. That way only the noise of you playing is heard. It'll take some playing around with, and there's a few different variations of noise gate available, whether you get a single knob like an ISP decimator, or you know multiple knob noise gates, but they all serve a purpose, they all do a great job, and there's not really a sound demo to go along with something that just mutes your signal. Uh, next, after the noise gate though, we've got modulation. One of the reasons that we'd want to put modulation after our noise gate, some modulations can get quieter, cause some issues, uh, cause some movement in the volume that would cause the noise gate to clamp down on them. So regardless of where you put your noise gate, you want to make sure it's before your modulation, definitely before your time-based effects. But what can modulation do for you? This is an example of one of my favorite modulation effects called a univibe. It simulates a rotating Leslie speaker cabinet Go ahead and give it a listen.
If you're a fan of Jimi Hendrix, you've undoubtedly heard of the Univibe. It's a great modulation effect, very classic, especially if you listen to his performance of the Star Spangled Banner or later on in Band of Gypsies. But after the Univibe comes time-based effects. Um, one note about time-based effects, for me, I typically like to put the tremolo in between the delay and the reverb. Just sounds really cool to me, sounds really different, sounds really crazy, but time-based effects in themselves are something that takes your guitar and extends it with a trail. This could be reverb, which is simulating the echo of being in a room or a hall or you know a spring tank or a plate, or it could be delay, which is taking your signal and either using tapes, digital algorithms, or bucket brigade device chips to repeat your signal over and over again as it degrades. You want to put these at the very end, definitely after your noise gate, because you don't want them to be cut off by the noise gate, and you don't want anything to distort or mess with the trails. Now, sometimes you can put modulation after time-based effects. Sometimes that will work to your advantage. In fact, a lot of like popular reverbs and delays, for example, like the Walrus Fathom or the MXR Carbon Copy, they have knobs that control modulation to those trails uh, at the end of the reverb and the decay. However, one thing you want to avoid is putting your drives after your reverbs and delays. And I'm going to show you a demo where you hear what it sounds like when you put your drives after your reverb. It's going to sound, you know, not too pleasant. Um, but first, before we take a look at that, I'm going to play a demo that has your drive before your reverb. Now, the way that I had that reverb set is it was sounding like we were in, you know, maybe like a garage, like a metal room. You could hear especially when I stopped playing that echo right there. But what does this sound like if we have a drive like a fuzz? after our reverb. It sounds pretty nasty, but if shoegaze is what you're into and you like that sound, use it. Just know for most conventional applications, this is going to not work well, and you'll hear why. So you heard especially in the end there, that, that echo was very distorted, very nasty, just overall very noisy, sounding like it was about to feed back. And that's essentially what you get whenever you have your you know, time-based effects before your drives. And that's why it's conventional wisdom to avoid it. But you know, I hope this section has given any of you guys that are new to putting together a pedal board some more ideas on what you should do you know, what orders to start trying things in. That way you're not just lost in the sauce with a bunch of pedals that you're trying to put together and you don't know what goes where. Just be cognizant of what you're doing, but at the end of the day, have fun with it and use what works for your sound. So to wrap the show up, we've got our crazy music fact for the week, and that is everybody knows who B.B. King is. Uh, a lot of people, if you, you know, if you're familiar with B.B. King, you know that his famous Gibson ES-335 is, he named it Lucille. Well, how did Lucille get its, her name? B.B. Um, King, uh, when he was younger, he actually rushed into a fire to save his Gibson ES-335. They were at a gig, and, you know, the building caught fire, so he rushed back in to save his guitar, which was actually only worth $30 way back at the time. Um, 
but the fire was actually started by two men who were fighting. Uh, they knocked over a bucket of kerosene during their scuffle, and it was only determined afterwards that they were fighting over a woman, and the woman's name was Lucille, hence why B.B. King, you know, started calling his guitar Lucille, and the name stuck. Just a pretty interesting story. But to wrap the show up, um, I just want to let you guys know you can email me anytime you'd like, any day of the week, any night of, or any hour of the night, right? I will talk to you. I will respond to you when I get around to it. Uh, the email for the podcast is pedalsandpickups at gmail.com. You know, uh, you can suggest topics. You can hit me up to chat about gear. Whatever you'd like to do that will help you develop as a guitarist, I am here and I am a resource for you. I love doing this stuff. I love getting questions. I love answering questions. And I love just, you know, providing opinions, whether my opinions are popular or not. And I'd be happy to, you know, reach out, talk to you guys, and, you know, also get feedback and let me know what you'd like to see talked about on the podcast. You know, I'm doing this to be able to provide resources for people that, you know, didn't have anyone around them that knew about guitar when they were younger. That's just you know, starting out and they don't have people to ask these questions to or they don't have a guitar store nearby, things like that. So please send me an email, pedalsandpickups at gmail.com, and I would be happy to answer any questions you have or talk about whatever topics you'd like. It has been a wonderful time hanging out with you guys. I'm glad that you were on the show. I'm glad that you let me annoy you for an hour, and I can't wait to pick back up next week. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening, have a wonderful day, and I'll see you guys next time. Bye.